From CJSR, FM 88.5, this is the CJSR edition, a weekly hour of spoken word programming dedicated to exploring the highs and lows of culture, art, and politics. My name is Matt Hergy. Thanks for tuning in. I mean, this is a very corrupt system where one hand rubs the other, as we say uh, in Armenian. And I think uh, information is absolutely key. Thomas Jefferson said it's, it's essential for the functioning of democracy. If people don't know what's going on, then they can be led by the nose, as many people are led by the nose, who believe that there's something inherently wrong with collective action, that, you know, that the only game in town is the capitalist economic system. And the only foreign policy, at least as far as the U.S. is concerned, is an imperial policy driven by militarism. I'd like to introduce you to my first guest. Hi, this is David Barsamian, founding director of Alternative Radio. You're listening to the CJSR edition on CJSR FM 88.5. Now, for those loyal listeners of CJSR, this might just be one of those eerie moments of radio magic. David Barsamyang is the founder and host of Alternative Radio, a weekly radio series produced in Boulder, Colorado. And CJSR airs this program every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. It's a show which focuses on perspectives and stories that are often ignored by mainstream media organizations. Barsam Young started producing alternative radio in the fall of 1986. Now this was a disconcerting year in the history of media. It was in January of that year that Capital Cities bought the American Broadcasting Corporation for $3.5 billion. And then in June 1986, General Electric purchased RCA the parent company of NBC, for a price tag of just $6.4 billion. At the time, it was the largest non-oil acquisition in U.S. history. Barsam Young grew wary of these mergers and acquisitions in the media world. And I was very concerned about the lack of diverse voices, particularly coming from the left. The industry was becoming increasingly consolidated, and that could only mean one thing less diversity of voices and ideas finding their way to the ears and eyes of the media-consuming public. And you don't hear controversy and debate, so the range of opinion is from A to B rather than from A to Z. And I was particularly struck by the lack of any presence by Noam Chomsky, uh, someone who I admire very, very much and respect deeply. And I thought, well, what's wrong with this picture here? Why aren't American U.S. dissidents on the public radio airwaves? That's why public radio was created in the United States. Uh, and so I, I decided to start uh, Alternative Radio. Barsam Young is one of America's most wide-ranging and respected independent journalists. He's altered the media landscape with his radio programs and books with the likes of Noam Chomsky. They're not just Chomsky, but people like Howard Zinn, uh, Edward Said. His most recent books are Occupy the Economy, 
Challenging Capitalism with Richard Wolff, and Power Systems, conversations on global democratic uprisings and the new challenges to U.S. empire, with Noam Chomsky, of course. Last week, Barsam Young spoke at the Edmonton Public Library about the intersections of media, democracy, and the environment. Prior to that lecture, Barsam Young came into our studios for an extended interview. We started our conversation by talking about the media landscape in the 21st century and how it has evolved or devolved over the years since alternative radio first started broadcasting. When I began, there were about 50 corporations that control most of the media uh, in the U.S. Uh, That has now shrunk to five. But I have good news for Canadians. Your situation is even worse than the United States. Four corporations uh, basically dominate what most people hear uh, in Canada, hear, read, and, and see. So that's not... I think, an ideal situation for the communication needs of a democratic society. We need wide ranges of opinion and perspectives, conflicting views, things that challenge embedded ideas that, for example, it's it's a given in U.S. discourse that U.S. foreign policy is a force for good. It is benign. It is trying to help people uh, who are uh, in difficult situations uh, around the world. Well, that's so, so much clashes with reality. Just ask any Yemeni who's been bombed or Pakistani or Iraqi or Afghan or Somali if that is, in fact, the result of uh, U.S. policy. Mm-hmm. Well, and not to mention uh, you were talking about the current media landscape in Canada. CBC has been witness to massive shrinkages in its budget, and they just announced a couple weeks ago that they were going to lay off approximately about 700 uh, journalists, 700 people in that organization. So where is the media landscape now, and how has it evolved since you, uh, since you started Alternative Radio? More and more corporate control, more and more concentration, And in the public sphere, as with the CBC, uh, the same thing has been happening with National Public Radio in the United States and the BBC uh, in the UK. Uh, Massive budget cuts. Bureaus have been uh, closed down or greatly reduced. Uh, Staffing has been... uh, uh, reduced as well, so they're relying more on more, more and more on what I call drive-by journalism. Uh, there's a crisis in Cairo. Fly somebody out there, have him stand in front of a mosque, uh, do a three-minute uh, stand-up, you know, whether it's TV or radio, uh, and then bring him back. And so there's no knowledge of the country, the cultures, the languages. Uh, it's very superficial, and more and more of the foreign coverage uh, is. Uh, like that. It's it's very much on the surface and doesn't get into any kind of depth. And it's one way then also by cutting budgets to drive audiences away from these former... formerly well-regarded, let's say, never perfect uh, news organizations. It's very striking. It's very ideologically driven. Uh, The idea of public broadcasting or public broadcasters uh, is anathema to the uh, trumpeters of the so-called free market. 
Mm-hmm. So where does alternative radio place itself then in that spectrum as a voice of dissent? Well, it is a content provider, uh, as we call it uh, in the States. And so I depend on stations like CJSR to broadcast the program. And I'm really thrilled to say that across Canada, from Halifax to Victoria, alternative radio uh, can be heard on campus community stations, not on the CBC uh, network, which Mm -hmm. has many more uh, listeners and is very powerful signals and um, enormous budget compared to what campus and community radio stations uh, have. I'm on many community radio stations in the United States, uh, as bad as the corporate media are in the U.S., and they are appalling, uh, there is a lively community radio network from uh, Tampa to Boulder, where I live, to Portland, Oregon, and all across the U.S. There are vibrant, dissident, uh, challenging, daring, I I dare say, uh, community radio stations. And that's a natural base for alternative radio. In your opinion, beyond those syndication numbers, beyond the fact that 200, more than 200 radio stations across the world syndicate alternative radio every week, what has alternative radio managed to accomplish, maybe in terms of collecting and broadcasting those voices of dissent? Well, it's difficult for me to say what the program has accomplished. Um, Hardly a day goes by when I don't receive uh, emails and even personal letters and phone calls from listeners who say they were affected uh, in a very positive way by a particular program they heard, let's say, on fracking, which I've been focusing on uh, Mm -hmm. very much. There's a a wonderful woman who's gone to jail uh, for her opposition to fracking practices. Her name is Sandra Steingraber. She's kind of like the Rachel Carson or even David Suzuki uh, of the United States in terms of uh, bringing public awareness to this critical uh, attack on uh, the environment. So activists uh, say that programs help them to get motivated to contact other people. Uh, I see myself and what alternative radio is as a kind of electronic umbilical cord connecting different groups and disparate group groups. Mind you, I mean, the U.S. with a population of something like 320 million, uh, people are very atomized. They're very separated. Uh, they don't know literally what's going on on the other side of town. Uh, there may be a, an activity that they'd like to get engaged in, some, some organization they'd like to join. So alternative radio provides that kind of uh, glue, mm. a bridge to link people together to overcome which something which is very paralyzing and serves uh, power interests, and that is atomization, isolation. It's just me. There's nobody else out there. I'm the only one thinking these thoughts. Uh, you know, something weird about me. I think, you know, maybe capitalism has some problems. Maybe imperialism is not a great way for U.S. foreign policy to be. Uh, and But I'm, I'm the only one thinking these things. And when you have community, when you're joined by other voices and and other people who are infusing their energy uh, into the dialogue, that's when growth occurs, and that's when isolation 
is overcome. And that's very, very important in terms of, uh, I believe, political change, overcoming isolation. You've dedicated the program to a very sort of long-form lecture series, long-form interview series that increasingly more and more is sort of unheard of. It is unheard of. It's a a veritable dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Everything is being uh, compressed. We're being tweeterized. That is to say, 140 characters. Express your ideas. Uh, And it's a dumbing down of the public in the United States, at least. And uh, I'm so dedicated to this old format of a full hour to get views explicated in detail with examples, with context, with history, with background, uh, rather than just a soundbite. Uh, Ralph Nader, who's a you know a tremendous um, consumer advocate and a major U.S. Uh, hero of these last decades, he said when he started out, you know, doing like media interviews, uh, he it was like uh, forty seconds or 45 seconds. Uh, Then it was reduced. He actually traced this. Then it was down to 30, then to 20, uh, then to five. And now you can just say your name and you're gone. Quick. So do you think that the the long form format uh, aligns itself to your goal of connecting community? Are they somehow linked together? Absolutely, because the, the treasures are in the details. So to to break through this notion that all news can be be reduced to a few simplistic and superficial headlines, I think is very, very important for people to understand uh, what trade agreements actually mean, what the Keystone XL pipeline actually represents, who controls Canada, who owns the United States. I mean, these are questions that you don't hear in the mainstream media, um, and I think they're very important. To get you know to flush out this information and to flesh it out to give it body to give it detail uh, is absolutely uh, critical and so alternative radio uh, is dedicated to that Uh, people can go to the website it's alternativeradio.org and uh, you know whenever possible I'm not saying this because I'm speaking to you in Edmonton uh, I try to get Canadian voices uh, on the air like Naomi Klein uh, like uh, Elaine Bernard like uh, Andrew Nikafor. Uh, Maud Barlow, a wonderful radical uh, independent journalist is uh, Eve Engler, uh, people like that. I'd love to get uh, Canadian content uh, on the air because U.S. people have little knowledge about what's going on uh, north of the 49th parallel. Canada is some kind of cuddly, warm country, you know, with polar bears and penguins and uh, Eskimos and sleds and First Nations and and hockey, of course, and and lots of snow, but really very little knowledge about uh, the enormous impact Canada is having on the environment, not just uh, in Canada itself, obviously, but uh, around the world. 75% of the major mining companies are headquartered in Canada. Do you consider alternative radio to be that, uh, I dare say, it, agent of social change, uh, a term that is tossed around a lot? Do you consider it to be that way, and has it ever lived up to your expectations in that regard? Well, nothing ever lives up entirely to one's expectations. But yes, I think it has been a motor. It has been a motivator uh, because information is power. And when people have information, uh, they're able then to channel it and transfer 
transform it uh, into social movements. So there's been a huge increase in uh, anti-fracking activities uh, in the United States. I don't know if that's going on very much in Canada. There's enormous opposition to the Keystone XL pipeline uh, being built, which is a a prize for the uh, Harper government in Ottawa to achieve. Uh, And so I think, yes, uh, it has helped fuel uh, social movements uh, by providing them uh, not just with information, but overcoming this isolation, which I referred Mm -hmm. to earlier, that you're not alone. There are people just like you in great numbers who think the same way, that there's something seriously happening with the environment, and it has to be addressed and addressed very quickly uh, before irreparable harm uh, is done to nature. Mm-hmm. So capitalism, of course, is unable to do that because capitalism is an economic system that is dedicated entirely to generating profits for its investors and for its owners. And it is inimical to the in- interests of Mother Nature, to of to Pachamama, to Gaia, to the Earth itself, our home, this pale blue dot in the universe, as Carl Sagan uh, called it. So we have to think about, uh, and there's in fact a Canadian uh, professor uh, in um, Ontario, uh, McMurty, who says we're in the cancer stage of capitalism right now. The tumor is growing larger and larger. It's metastasizing, and ultimately it will consume its host. And that's, in fact, the, that's what capitalism is doing. It is consuming its host, the earth. And so we are leaving a terrible legacy for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren who will pay the price for what is going on in northern Alberta, who will pay the price for what's going on in North Dakota and in Texas and Oklahoma in terms of the attack on the environment. It is a war on nature. We are in a full-scale war on nature carried out by corporations who are dedicated to looting and plundering resources, all in the name of growth and progress, two terms which have taken on an almost mystical theological quality. Well, are you against growth? Are you against progress? Yes, I am. When it is destroying our home, when it is destroying our habitat, when it is killing uh, species off in great numbers uh, and ruining the possibility of a decent future for coming generations. Yes, I'm against those things. We have to reinvent the way we think about growth and progress. What is the value then of independent media of reinventing those terms of growth and progress? By breaking down the propaganda tropes, by cutting through the crap that uh, capitalism is some kind of miraculous uh, engine that keeps uh, developing uh, new and better ways to live. I mean, how many iPhones, how many iterations of the iPhones do we need? You know, i5, i6, i7, i8. It just keeps coming because they have to keep generating profits. In fact, there is a inherent in, in the capitalist economic system is planned obsolescence. So car have to be constantly reinvented, buy new ones, get new and improved. It's a constant sell. And so so much of the U.S. market is dedicated to selling selling goods to people that they don't really need. Mm. 
So I, I'm curious then, what, what in your opinion are the intersections between media and, say, a functioning democracy? Absolutely crucial that citizens have information because without information, uh, they can't understand the political issues. So the because the propaganda coming from the corporations who are closely aligned with state interests. In fact, there's a revolving door. I mean, we see this in the U.S. all the time, uh, where high, uh, let's say, officials in the energy industry, oil and gas, uh, suddenly find themselves as secretaries in the government of, say, ministers or deputy ministers. Uh, we see that very clearly in the military industry complex where a, let's say, a vice president of Northrop Grumman or Lockheed Martin, two of the biggest military corporations, are then appointed assistant secretaries of defense uh, for the Air Force. And they're, they're now buying, uh, issuing contracts to their former uh, employers. What is the end result of that if we, say, don't have a independent media or a, uh, a media that is increasingly owned by, say, five corporations? What is – does that sort of result, in your opinion, uh, to inequalities in our society and, and what inequalities specifically? You know, there's a lot of talk in the U.S., I don't know about Canada, about uh, income inequality and wealth inequality. I would like to suggest another kind of inequality, information inequality. Hmm. Okay. You're, you're, you know, you're, let's take you, you know, you're educated, you read the Globe and Mail, you read the Financial Post, you read the National, uh, you watch the CBC TV, you listen to the CBC, you read books, you're, you know, you're, you are at a certain level of information acquisition. I'm leaving aside the propagandistic uh, content that, that those uh, media may, may have. Then other people you know, don't have access uh, to those forms of information. And so there's a certain inequality. Uh, and, you know, it's very class-driven uh, as well. And I think that's, you know, something that independent media helps, helps to overcome mm -hmm. the class bias uh, in, in the news. From CJSR FM 88.5, you're listening to the CJSR edition. My guest today is David Barsam Young, founding director and host of Alternative Radio, a weekly radio program produced in Boulder, Colorado. Okay, so I want to move on then to um, your career as a journalist. And you, you said you spent 20, 28 years uh, recording and collecting the voices of dissent. I'm curious what you've learned about society on um, perhaps a more holistic level through your career as a journalist. Well, I actually started in 1978 mm -hmm. doing this kind of work. And I'm a very late bloomer, uh, by the way. I'm almost 69, but I didn't really get into radio until I was in my 30s. I was doing different things, you know, like playing sitar and studying music in India and then coming back and playing in Bangladeshi and Pakistani and Indian restaurants in New York and then teaching English as a second language to foreigners. And so I, I tried many things before I kind of um, discovered radio or radio discovered me when I moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1978 from New York and a community radio station 
station went on the air just at that time okay. fortuitously and they were looking for volunteers and I didn't have you know I was an unemployed sitar player uh, and I didn't have any job prospects so I said let me volunteer at this community radio station so I started doing radio uh, in 78 and then I you know I wrote to Noam Chomsky and he wrote back uh, and that became you know became a correspondence leading to our first interview uh, and this September actually we're going to be marking that 30th anniversary of the first interview we did with a big public event uh, in uh, Boston. So um, I want to, and I don't have any academic credentials, I'm totally self-taught, and I say that not in any boastful way, but this isn't really hard work. Uh, in terms of technical content. I mean, it's not neurosurgery. Uh, You know, you're not performing uh, cardiovascular transplants. Uh, You wouldn't want an amateur, you know, you wouldn't want me to come in and say, you know, I've learned how to do neurosurgery from a book or I'm watching people. No, you want a trained person for that. But this work is pretty easy to do. And I started doing it and I got better and better at it. And so, uh, you know, I encourage young people to get involved in, in media. It's not that complicated. And, and it's very satisfying work to do when you're uncovering uh, stories and, and discovering uh, things. I think that's the main goal of uh, any media organization or any media activist is to uncover and discover the truth. Because mm. powerful organizations, be they the state or private corporations, have a lot to cover. They're covering up a lot and we need to uncover, we need to pull the veil Uh, back from what they're doing and exposing, uh, for example, here in Alberta, uh, what the tar sands uh, are actually doing uh, to the environment, the impact they're having on First Nations and Aboriginals uh, in northern Alberta is catastrophic. Uh, I understand that there are forms of cancer now that have never been seen uh, in this country and in in this province, uh, you know, directly related to what's happening uh, in, in the tar sands. So So doing media is very satisfying work and it's very important work uh, and it's not that difficult. And people are lucky to have a station like CJSR in Edmonton where they can come and volunteer and learn uh, media skills. That's how I got into it uh, in in Boulder, Colorado. Is there a larger narrative that you feel like you have uh, discovered or uncovered in those years as a journalist? Well, there's a lot lot of lying going on in the United States. There's misrepresentations of history. Uh, There's misrepresentations of the present. You know, as uh, Orwell said, those who control the past control the present. Those who control the present control uh, the future. Uh, News and information and history is a battleground. It is contested. It is very politicized Mm -hmm. how things are remembered, you know, how uh, things are not remembered. Uh, For example, uh, at the end of World War II, uh, the United States recruited some of the most notorious uh, war criminals from Nazi Germany and brought them to the United States and protected them, high scientific uh, elites as well as uh, intelligence operatives, uh, um, you know, scandalous kind of thing that, you know, very few people uh, know about. You know, I think one person in particular who you have had a number of interviews with uh, that could really speak to that 
who unfortunately is no longer with us, is Edward Said and his his books, Orientalism and Culture, Culture and Imperialism. What did you learn from him through your conversations about those those topics of distorted history? Well, it's curious that you should mention uh, Edward Said, with whom I was you know, pretty close, and did two books with him, one called uh, The Pen and the Sword, which has just been reissued, and the other called Culture and uh, Resistance. I mean, he was a titanic figure. And in fact, um, that intersection around 1978 is when his book Orientalism came out. And that's and I read it, and it had a big influence on me. So I had uh, Chomsky on one hand and Edward Said on the other, uh, particularly dealing with issues around uh, Islam and the Arab Middle East and Palestine specifically, uh, the distortions and the outright lying about uh, the past uh, was something that uh, Said focused on with uh, great acuity and uh, precision, but also bringing in cultural aspects, which I found very um, interesting because I had this background of studying music in, in India. So I was very interested in uh, literature and poetry and music and how Orientalism, a, to- a term that he kind of coined, uh, played a role in the Western European, specifically French, British, and later U.S. domination of the Arab Middle East, Mm. how we saw them, how they were otherized into categories and segmented and denied identity. Their identity was only seen through others, through European eyes. Uh, You bring up the word they, uh, and that to me elicits Noam Chomsky and his uh, work on class warfare. So I'm curious, uh, what, what is the connection between Noam Chomsky and Edward Said, two individuals that you have spent a, a, num- a, a number of years with? Well, I think they're both uh, dedicated to exposing the lies of the rich and the powerful. Tremendous uh, intellectual giants uh, also. I mean, the U.S., you know, where Chomsky was born, Said was born in Jerusalem, Palestine uh, in 1935. He died in New York in uh, 2003. Uh, were, they were very dedicated to social movements and often put their their talents, their abilities at the service of of these movements uh, in support. So if you needed someone to come and speak, you know, give Chomsky a call. If you needed uh, a petition to be signed, ask Professor Saeed, he'll sign it. You know, you need some kind of moral support, uh, which is very important. I think mutual support and solidarity uh, is something which characterizes all real intellectuals. Uh, who are not just running after a paycheck or uh, wanting to be knighted by the Queen of England or seeking some greater glory, but are dedicated to uh, humanity and are dedicated to genuine social change and to progress. Do you consider yourself one of those individuals? No, I don't. I'm just, um, you know, I'm just a vehicle for these ideas. And, I, you know, I'm a pretty good editor and uh, I've been fairly skillful at doing interviews. I've been, and um, the first interview I ever did actually was the most difficult of my life. And everyone since has been very, very easy. I interviewed my mother, who was a survivor of the uh, genocide of the Armenians by the Turks uh, in 1915. And 
2015 will mark the 100th anniversary of this genocide, which the Turkish government continues uh, to uh, deny. But to talk to my mother about her horrific experiences uh, and the death of her parents and her brothers and aunts and uncles uh, is something I'll never forget and was very, very difficult for me to do. And so every interview since then has been pretty easy. How did uh, that interview with your with your mother influence your political perspective? political perspectives and influence your journalistic career? Well, growing up in New York, I uh, was born there in 1945, uh, the shadow of this genocide was was very prominent. Uh, it wasn't talked about because the survivors that I knew in my family uh, were hesitant. They were uncomfortable with talking about uh, the horrors that they had seen. Uh, there was even some survivor guilt you know, among among them. But I, I discovered with my mother, and this is in around 1970, 71, uh, when I did this interview on a $20 tape recorder with a built-in microphone, a very crude kind of device, that these survivors that I knew in New York had something valuable mm-hmm. uh, for history, for posterity. And so I then started to collect uh, all of these. I started doing interviews with uh, people from my mother's village and other villages uh, in Anatolia, which was the historic homeland of the Armenian people. And uh, those were the first interviews I ever did. Uh, and I've recently digitized them and, uh, you know, I've improve the sound somewhat, and uh, they're being translated into English. Most of them are in Armenian. A few of them are in English. Uh, And so they will be ready for the 100th anniversary uh, next year. When you listen to those tapes uh, so many years later, what what sorts of feelings come to your mind? Well, my whole entire childhood and and their voices and their memories, I mean, all those people are gone now. And so a past is conjured up, uh, a past not of my own past in New York growing up, but also of a civilization that was lost, that was destroyed in total. the the separation from land, from the churches and monasteries and libraries and cultural institutions and the air and the water, that was all just, you know, wrenched from the womb. Uh, And those people, the survivors, many of them did not survive, were literally thrown into Canada, where there's quite a large Armenian community, actually, in Montreal and Toronto as well. Uh, or in the United States, where this is one of the largest uh, in the world outside of the Republic of Armenia. This is the CJSR edition. My name is Matt Herji. My guest today is David Barsum Young, founding director, radio producer, journalist, and host of Alternative Radio. His most recent books are Occupy the Economy, Challenging Capitalism with Richard Wolff, and Power Systems, Conversations on Global Democratic Uprisings and the New Challenge to U.S. Empire with Noam Chomsky. I want to finish our conversation by talking about another another author and perhaps another anniversary, uh, that of uh, James Baldwin. 
who would be turning 90 years old uh, this year. And I understand that he uh, had a a formative influence uh, on your on your political perspectives. I started reading his essays uh, in around 1960, and I was still a teenager, and there was a lot of things I didn't understand and a lot of words and concepts that I could not process. Uh, But I I remember reading Nobody Knows My Name and then the essay in the New Yorker magazine called The Fire uh, Next Time. time, Yeah, Yeah. and uh, Fifth Avenue Uptown was a very uh, influential uh, essay because I didn't live that far away from Fifth Avenue. But in New York, which is like many cities uh, in the United States, is heavily segregated. Uh, There was the Fifth Avenue uptown, which was almost entirely black. And then there was the Fifth Avenue downtown, which was extremely white and very, very affluent. Mm -hmm. So that right there in New York, you had this incredible kind of schizophrenic class and race divide between the rich and the poor. And through James Baldwin, you know, I discovered my own city and the people in that city. And uh, then I read a novel called Another Country, and I, I tried to keep up with his uh, his writing. I found him a very sympathetic figure. Uh, I was also, at the time, very interested in, in jazz, and uh, I was influenced by Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and Miles Davis and, you know, the poetry of Amiri Baraka, uh, who recently uh, passed on. Uh, All of those were kind of an influence Mm -hmm. on me. In my opinion, it seems like James Baldwin is this this figure in American history who was able to touch on the fact that we live in a very, very complex society with a lot of layers. Uh, Does that square with your observations? Well, I I think it's a kind of truism that uh, doesn't require a lot of uh, insight uh, to come to that kind of conclusion. Of of course, we live in very uh, complex societies. Uh, Canada is a country of 35 million people and has diverse populations. Uh, there's different, there are class divides, ethnic divides, religious uh, divides. But ultimately, we're all human beings. We're all in this body. Uh, we're all going to perish. We have an outcome that is uh, absolutely certain. Uh, and the thing is, you know, what are we going to do in this short time that we're on planet Earth? Earth? Mm-hmm. Are we going to contribute in some way to the social good, or are we just going to blindly uh, accumulate uh, more and more material goods and wealth? Well, I only say that because it seems like more and more uh, these corporate media interests are attempting to whitewash our history or uh, make it as if it's p- plain and simple when in fact it's really not. And I feel like that's something that Alternative Radio was able well, to thank illuminate. You. Thank you. I mean, I try and do that, but you know. I mean, here in Canada, you've had a lot of attention paid to uh, the residency schools and the impact that's uh, that's had on on the on the kids and, mm-hmm. and, the, and that kind of um, cultural devastation that was visited uh, upon them. And I understand that actually these schools went on till fairly recently. 1996. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's mm-hmm. shocking, you know. Um, but it's not surprising that powerful interests would want to control history. Uh, history is a weapon. If you're armed with this w- weapon, if you're uh, in a good way armed, if you have the facts, if you have the information, then you can refute the propaganda mm. uh, that we're saturated 
saturated with, uh, you know, continuously, that this form of capitalist development uh, has to continue. It cannot be. But mind you, particularly in the United States, it's not even capitalism. They invoke the name Adam Smith all the time and David Ricardo and, you know, and other so-called free market advocates. The, the capitalism in the United States that's practiced relies on heavy state intervention. In some instances, outright subsidies. I want to bring this one more time back to James Baldwin before we wrap up, because I was reading in the New York Times uh, last night about how James Baldwin's writing is no longer taught in uh, American schools because, one, it doesn't match with the core curriculum, and also because some people, and I would, I would argue the government considers it to be too incendiary. It, is that do you feel that way? Do you feel like that uh, that uh, example matches with a certain narrative? Well, there's been an attack on public education across the board uh, in the United States, and it's it's all I don't know about Canada, but uh, funds have been reduced, teachers have been laid off, or the teachers who stay in their jobs are given larger and larger uh, student bodies to deal with. Uh, many schools have been closed or you know, reduced in size. Uh, there's been greater concentration as this is seen more as a factory to produce cogs uh, in the machine. And the liberal arts, where James Baldwin would, would fill in, has come under severe attack uh, as being something not necessary for uh, the, the economy. Uh, people should be studying business and law and the hard sciences. And so we, we've seen this in the U.S. particularly, where uh, literature, languages are languishing. Uh, in fact, even journalism at the University of Colorado at Boulder, um, where I live in Boulder, Colorado, uh, they closed their journalism department hmm. a couple of years ago uh, and have now you know, created some kind of um, euphemism. It's called uh, media communications uh, or something of this nature. Uh, also, there's been a huge drive in the U.S. towards testing. Uh, almost it's become a fetish, an obsession, that everything has to be measured. And so teachers are now teaching toward test outcomes rather than a more uh, diverse and complex uh, curricula, which could generate from students creative responses. So the space for creativity uh, is being deliberately limited because, you know, the, the system is now more concerned with producing people who can fit into working into corporations rather than poets, writers, musicians who are the lifeblood of any culture. David Barsamyang, founding director of Alternative Radio, thank you for joining me today. You're very welcome. That was my conversation with David Barsamyang, journalist and founding director of the radio program Alternative Radio. If you'd like to find out more about his work, head over to alternativeradio.org or visit our show notes, cjsrnews.com slash edition.
On April 23, 2014, Edmonton was officially named the worst city to be a woman in Canada. That according to a new study published by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. To find out why Edmonton was placed so low on the list, CJSR's Roshni Nair called up Kate McInturf, the author of the study, and asked what makes us such an atrocious place for the fairer sex. In a recent study published by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, Edmonton was named the worst place to be a woman in Canada. The worst. By the way, worst is defined as bad or ill in the highest, greatest, or most extreme degree. Ouch. Worst. The study, called the best and worst place to be a woman in Canada, is a survey of 20 different cities in Canada. I spoke to Kate McInturf, a senior researcher for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, who authored the study. My name is Kate McInturf, and I'm a senior researcher at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And uh, I was interested in speaking to you because of a report that you published about the best and worst place to be a woman in Canada. And uh, what was most interesting to me was that Edmonton is the worst place to be a woman in Canada, according to your study. So Yeah, that, that was a bit of a surprise uh, uh, to me, and, and, I, and I, I am getting the impression it was a, a surprise to folks in Edmonton as well. <laughs> but um, I guess I wanted to talk to you more about um, just what were the parameters of the study and what was the motivation uh, that you had undertaking the study, right? Um, so the the study itself was modeled on some international gender equality indexes that allow, for example, the United Nations and the World Economic Forum to compare how countries are doing to one another. And so I started by thinking, you know, it would be interesting to look at. Uh, not just how Canada compares to other countries, but how different communities in Canada compare to one another, uh, using some of the same measures. So the kinds of, of indicators that I used here uh, fell into five different categories. So I looked at uh, health and education, um, where we see, you know, uh, across Canada, communities doing a very good job of ensuring that men and women are, are very nearly at parity in most of, uh, of the areas I looked at there. Um, and then uh, I looked at how men and women were faring in leadership, both in terms of their promotion into senior management positions and election uh, into political office at the municipal level. And then finally, I looked at uh, economic security and personal security for men and women. Um, and uh, that's where uh, I saw some of the biggest gaps. Kate studied data from the 20 most populous cities in Canada. The point of the study was to measure the difference between the access women and men have to the public goods available in their community, not the overall wealth of a community. Much of the data that the study uses comes from Statistics Canada. Specifically, how did Edmonton compare to other cities um, in each of these parameters? I think leadership kind of stands out to me immediately because I know we only have one city councillor who's a woman on staff. So 
That's right. I'm, a, I'm afraid that the one city councilor did bring Edmonton in a second to last in, in the area of, of elected officials, um, with St. John's coming in last with no city councilors uh, who were women at all. Um, uh, the other area that, that uh, really uh, contributed to Edmonton's performance, the gap between what women make and what men make is larger than average. So in Edmonton, if you look at paychecks, men are bringing home $21,000 more a year than women, and that is the biggest gap uh, in, the, in the country. Yikes. The best city in the country, once again, according to the Quantitative StatsCan statistics, was Quebec City. Why are there such differences between Edmonton and Quebec City? I mean, I think there there are some trends which suggest why there are these differences. Um, one of the things you, you can see in terms of the results are that cities in Quebec performed relatively well, with Quebec City coming out on top. Um, and at the other end of the scale, unfortunately, uh, Alberta cities performed uh, poorly out of out of the 20 cities I looked at. Uh, and, and I think that that what we could see uh, in the Quebec cities are some of the policies that the province has put in place that have really made a difference to women in Quebec. Um, and I would point to things like affordable child care, family leave policies, uh, parental leave policies, all of which help women balance their burden of unpaid work um, with uh, paid work. And there is research that's demonstrated that since women have had and men have had access to affordable childcare in Quebec, that we've seen women's employment go up steadily. Um, and that with that, we've also seen uh, the economy do better because women are working more hours, they're bringing home bigger paychecks, they're uh, contributing more to the economy. Um, so I think that's certainly a lesson that, that, that we can learn from that, that regional difference. Ah, uh, yes, the economy. The Quebec economy? Hmm... I'm a little bit skeptical, because if we are to believe recent news articles or this 2013 CTV Montreal documentary called Moving On, Why Quebecers Are Saying Adieu, and this 2014 CBC documentary called Stay or Go... And she's not the only one looking elsewhere for opportunities. I like Montreal. No, I love Montreal. <laughs> that love isn't enough for Marie-Hélène Aymon. She has a stacked resume, but she's been without full-time work for a year now. There's a lot of uh, head office creation uh, in other parts of Canada. So I'm looking more and more towards uh, Toronto and Calgary. And also I've been looking outside of Canada. If the right opportunity arises, I'm moving, definitely. And uh, because I need to work. If she goes, Aymon will be part of a growing statistic. More than 33,000 people abandoned Quebec for another province last year. That's the highest number since 1996 and 1997, in the aftermath of the last referendum on sovereignty. But a CBC Ecos poll shows many of those debating a move, 21%, are doing so because of the economy. And that migration hurts the province even further. There's still investment going into Ontario at a higher rate than into Quebec. And you're also seeing interprovincial migration into Ontario in a way that you're not experiencing in Quebec. So people are still voting with their feet and with their dollars. Other statistics are no more encouraging. The province's unemployment rate is hovering at 7.5% and Quebec shed tens of thousands of full-time jobs last year. But is it really as bleak as it seems? We should be doing much better than we are. In fact, what you see on almost every macroeconomic indicator, Quebec is in the bottom half of the 10 provinces or very close 
to ninth or 10th place. Salima Shivji, CBC News, Montreal. It seems as though the Quebec economy isn't doing that well, especially compared to the Albertan economy. Alberta is a resource-dependent economy where the streets are paved with black gold. Well, I'm being facetious. But it's true that this year, the latest RBC Economics Provincial Outlook says Alberta's real GDP growth will be the best in the country. We have to be a little bit more specific about the economy. And we have to ask two very important questions. What is the effect of a booming economy on things like economic security? And then, what is its specific effect on women? This study itself shows that women experience the lowest levels of poverty in Calgary, and Edmonton and Calgary have the highest levels of employment for women. However, in both of these cities, women don't get to enjoy the oil boom bounty like our male compatriots. There's a $21,000 difference between salaries of men and women in Edmonton. How do we explain that? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think one of the reasons that, there, that there's such a gap between uh, what men and women earn is that uh, not only do men and women in, in Alberta tend to work in different industries, which is true across the country, um, but the industries that, that the industry that women tend to work in in Alberta is the service sector. So on average, women tend to be overrepresented in the service sector, in education and health. Um, But if the place where you're seeing job growth is in the lowest paying industry that tends to employ women, then that's going to make the gap wider. Um, uh, So you could compare Alberta, say, to Ontario, where you've seen uh, provincial investments in uh, job creation in health and education, um, which are also female-dominated industries like the service sector, but they're much better paying industries. Uh, And so that's contributing to women earning more, and so you see a a smaller gap between women's earnings and men's earnings. Alberta is a natural resource-driven economy. In 2011, the energy sector accounted for 27.6% of Alberta's GDP. But women don't make up the well-paid engineers, oil rig workers, tradespeople, and oil company executives that participate in this most lucrative economic sector. And that's where this pay gap comes from. This is true for other similar economies. For example, the best-performing economy in Australia is the state of Western Australia, driven by iron ore mining, aluminum, and gas exports. Western Australia showed the most severe wage gap between men and women in 2010. Another example is Seattle, Washington. Payscale, a Seattle-based salary information company, took offense when Seattle was named the metropolitan city with the greatest pay gap in the USA. Women earn 73 cents to a man's dollar. They decided to look into why. The thing is, Seattle is dominated by the tech sector, which is dominated by men. The pay gap doesn't account for differences in experience, background, or responsibility. And when more men earn the higher incomes associated with a tech job, it increases the wage gap between women who are in lower paying service jobs. But if you look within the tech industry, a typical male software development engineer 
uh, compared with a typical woman software development engineer, the female pay gap is actually 97 cents to the dollar. So not too significant. Are you still with me? The real issue isn't necessarily pay inequality across the board. It's why is there such high levels of gender segregation in different industries and different occupations? Why is it that occupations dominated by men, for example, the oil industry, why are they the most financially lucrative jobs in our economy? Um, I think if you look at... at um sort of examples of, of uh, places where you, you see pay inequity uh, in jobs that are very similar. So, for example, if you look at um, uh, men and women who study library science, um, and men tend to go into um, go on to become archivists, and women, the majority, go on to become librarians. And archivists make more than librarians. And so, you obvi- so I think, obviously, you've got something happening there that has to do with social attitudes about men's work and women's work um, that doesn't have anything to do with people's training or equivalent skill set. But I also think that um, one of the things that that prevents women from working in non-traditional fields um, is you know, it's it's the same thing that that holds them back in other fields. It's it's lack of of access to childcare, and it's it's the fact that they're working uh, double the number of hours of unpaid work in the home. Um, so they just have less flexibility built into their lives. They have fewer hours um, uh, to put towards paid work. And it makes it harder for them to, to enter into demanding professions, professions with long hours, like you know, running for office, for example, being a politician, um, or to do uh, work in the extractive industry where you have to work in in long periods of of time. You know, you have to work in two- and three-week shifts. Um, And there's some good research uh, around women in the mining sector that that has uh, surveyed the women who do work in the mining sector and, you know, and, and they, and they have, have said that, that, you know, the lack of uh, flexibility around work hours and access to childcare are, are really getting in the way of their ability to be part of that industry. Alberta leans heavily on one industry for economic growth. It doesn't just cause extreme inequality between genders. It causes a bigger income gap for everyone because wealth in Alberta is being concentrated for the small number of people who are employed within the energy sector. Now that isn't a particularly surprising or new story. This study is a catchy exercise. However, it doesn't address differences between women. Women without high school uh, versus women with university degrees. Those women who are temporary foreign workers. And it definitely doesn't go into the qualitative issues about why women don't choose or can't work in different sectors. We don't really have any useful data here, but we have plenty of fodder for follow-up studies. Thank you to my guest Kate McIntyre from the Canadian Institute for Policy Alternatives. You can read the study the best and worst place to be a woman in Canada on policyalternatives.ca. For CJSR News, I'm Roshni Nair.
That's it for this week's episode of the CJSR Edition. I've been your host, Matt Hergy. I produced and edited this program in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5, the community-powered public radio station operating out of the worst place for a woman in Canada, Edmonton, Alberta. If you have any questions or feedback about this show, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at news at cjsr.com. Once again, thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode of the CJSR Edition, a weekly hour of spoken word programming dedicated to exploring the highs and lows of culture, art, and politics. And stay tuned. We have plenty more great radio coming up only on CJSR FM 88.5.